As we turn to the Word of God, I would invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 for this message entitled, How Not to Split a Church. How Not to Split a Church. Our text for this morning is Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. And this short passage is packed with church-preserving truth. Philippians chapter 4, when you're there, follow along as I read verses 2 and 3. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are found in the book of life. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come to this text and the truths found in it, we need your help. Not because the text is particularly difficult to understand, but because our hearts have a tendency to be hard. Every single one of us, as we open our mouths, as we interact with one another, as we serve in the church, whatever our role, each one of us has the capacity to split the church. And it is only by your grace and your work in our lives that helps us to live in unity and harmony. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us today to not just hear, but to be utterly committed to the truth of your word for the sake of Christ. Amen. An old publication contained an article entitled, 10 Ways to Split Your Church. It begins with this account. A church in the southern United States no longer exists due in part to an incident that took place in the church one Sunday afternoon. A new family had arrived to take part in their first potluck luncheon. The aroma of tuna casseroles, baked beans, and tater tots dishes uh, wafted throughout the building. The unsuspecting wife cheerfully brought her red gelatin salad to the kitchen, then headed back to the fellowship hall to join her family. The moment the pastor said, Amen, hungry parishioners politely charged for the serving line. 
There were dozens of dishes to sample. Where's our salad? The husband, the wife's husband in, asked innocently. There must be some mistake, she said. I'll find out what happened. She reached the kitchen door in time to witness the queen of the kitchen ladling the last of her salad into the disposal. What are you doing? The newcomer asked. That's my salad. Without batting an eye, the woman looked up and said, You're new to this church. You'll soon learn that we use real whipped cream around here, not Cool Whip. She hit the switch. The garbage disposal rumbled and gurgled and sucked the salad down the drain. That one incident started a significant church battle that escalated into an all-out war. Lest you think that's an isolated incident, in recent years, a Christian researcher posted a question on Twitter asking what people fight about in churches. And then he wrote an article listing 25 of his favorite answers. Here's four of them. One church argued over the appropriate length of the worship pastor's beard. Uh, another church argued and voted to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. I'm not sure if it was on that side or on that side. <laughs> One church argued over what type of green beans the church should serve. Some members left the church because one church member hid the vacuum cleaner from them. And it resulted in a major fight and split. Well, as ridiculous as those arguments sound, the reality is, and humility should cause us to confess that we are capable of similarly silly arguments. Well, coming back to the first article, let me give you, without comment, the 10 ways to split your church found in the article. And if you're taking notes, don't. <laughs> Number one, focus only on your own desires. Number two, listen to every criticism. Number three, focus on your pastor's weaknesses, not his strengths. Number four, speak the truth. Or practice love, but never combine the two. Number five, store grievances for future use. Number six, forgive only those who ask you to, and only if they deserve it. Number seven, hide your own sin behind harsh attitudes. Number eight, use prayers to unite discontented people and spread inappropriate information. Number nine, do whatever it takes to win. And number 10, remember, you are on a mission from God. No matter how significant or insignificant the issues of conflict are, practicing one or more of those will cause harm to the body of Christ. And knowing our tendency to act in those ways and to respond to disagreement and conflicts in other destructive ways. Paul addresses the conflict between Yodia and Syntyche here in such a way so as not only to help them and their church body, but also to help us address conflicts in the church. Now, in some ways, we would wish that 
Paul would have spoken specifically about their disagreement. What was it that they were arguing about? That would seem to make it easier for us to discern how we can apply those principles in our church as well. But I would suggest to you that Paul's silence on the details actually helps us. We can know, for example, that the matter did not pertain to gospel truth. Paul wrote in Galatians 1 verse 9, If any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. And so if Yodi and Syntyche had disagreed on the gospel, or if there was an issue of false teaching, Paul would have brought strong correction to that error. We can also know that the disagreement didn't pertain to matters of biblical faithfulness. Almost every apostolic letter contains uh, uh, biblical, not only the biblical gospel and sound doctrine, but also truths and principles that correct beliefs and practices inconsistent with faithfulness to God and His revealed will for our lives. For example, in Ephesians and Colossians, and this is just a sampling, Paul addresses family roles and community relationships. In Romans and 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses matters of Christian living like marriage and divorce, submission to governing authorities, and the use of spiritual gifts in the church. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul corrected false teaching about the second coming because of the very real-world consequences of having wrong thinking about that. 1 Timothy addresses qualifications for leaders and how to serve widows in the church, and we could go on and on. So, when there were issues within churches that pertain to how Christians should live consistently with gospel truth and sound doctrine, Paul brought correction to those issues. Here in Philippians, we get no hints as to what were the issues that were dividing the conf- and, and bringing conflicts in the church at large, as well as between Yodia and Syntyche in particular. That would seem to indicate that the issues do not pertain, do not relate to gospel truth, sound doctrine, or biblical faithfulness in Christian living and relationships. So what could they possibly have disagreed about that was driving such a deep wedge and that the apostle felt it was important to address it? I don't know, maybe it was the falafel recipe to use in fellowship meals. I mean, who knows? The possibilities are truly endless. It's almost certain that the issue itself, set in the context of biblical truth, was of no consequence. It was likely a matter of personal opinion that turned into a battle of desires. James 4.1 says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures? that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, James doesn't mean there that the churches he's writing to were having stacks of corpses of church members. He echoes the teaching of Jesus who said that murder first place takes in the heart when we deny the image of God in another person and treat them in undignified ways. And the reason we treat them that way, James says, is because of our pleasures, of our lusts. Which is to say that we elevate our desires above God's desires for us in that situation. 
We've made our priorities more important than God's priorities. Our expectations more imperative than God's purposes. And our goals more crucial than God's goals. Whether it's the whipped cream we prefer, or thoughts of how a ministry should be run, decor preferences or music style preferences, the use of technology or any other issue that isn't a matter of biblical truth or biblical faithfulness. When we elevate our desires, our preferences, our expectations, our priorities above God's, we will quickly find ourselves embroiled in a church conflict. So when we feel friction with another person in the church, leadership or not, The instruction Paul provides in these two short verses will guide our steps as we address the situation. Now we're going to walk through this passage under three headings. Really three words just to organize our thoughts around. The first is urgency. The second is unity. And the third is help. Urgency, unity, and help. Let's begin with urgency. Look again at verse 2. Paul says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche. Imagine yourself in the church of Philippi, listening to this letter as it's being read for the first time. It's being sent to you from the Apostle Paul, with whom you personally served side by side in the early days of the church. And you know that at least one reason he's writing is because there's conflict And he knows that you are one of the primary people involved in that conflict. Throughout the reading of the letter, your heart rate's been a little elevated because you've been waiting to hear what Paul is going to say about that situation. And now your eyes are fixed on the pastor as he's reading from the parchment and you can see that he's coming down to the end of the letter. So you start to breathe a a sigh of relief. Paul hasn't really addressed the situation, at least not in any specific way. And in fact, You've so enjoyed what Paul has said that you're already starting to think about how this needs to be copied and spread to other churches because of how Paul is exalting Christ and and compelling us to live for Christ. But then you hear your name called out and the name of the other person called out. And everyone turns to look at you and the other person. All of your senses are heightened and now focused on what he's going to say. Notice, as you look at the passage, that that Paul does not say, I urge Yodia and Syntyche. No, he says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche. Small difference though it is, it's as though Paul is is looking at each one of them and wants to know that what he's about to say applies to both of them. If he were there in person, he would would look at one, he'd say, Yodia. And then look at the other and say, Syntyche. But he can't look at them and so he says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche. The verb urge there is a word that can be translated in all kinds of ways. In fact, If you look at uh, most English translations, you'll find almost every one of them uses a different word. Here are some of the ones that are commonly used. Urge, as here in the NAS. Entreat, 
plead with, implore, beseech, appeal. The verb is parakaleo. And kaleo is the verb that means to call or to summon. And the prefix para means alongside. And really the word when you put it together means coming alongside someone to speak the truth in love. It's a word that's often translated exhort. But in our common use of exhort, that has a, a flavor of confrontation. And it's actually translated comfort more often than exhort, such as 2 Corinthians 1.4, where Paul says, God comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. All of those are parakaleo. It also means to encourage, as it does in Hebrews 3.13, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So when Paul urges Yodia and Syntyche, he's coming alongside them as a loving friend, imploring them to cease hostilities and to work out their differences and unite under the banner of Christ. There's also urgency conveyed here. Unresolved conflicts in any relationship, and especially in a group of relationships, has a way of escalating and devolving into this Gordian knot that becomes difficult to unravel. At some point, the, the original issue gets completely lost in, in what's happened over the course of time, what's been said and what's been done. And so the sooner that issues are addressed, the easier they are to unravel and the less impact they have on others. In Ephesians 4, Paul implores parakaleo believers saying, be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And the idea of diligence there is to hurry, to expedite the process, to take great pains to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And Jesus teaches the same idea this way in Matthew 5. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and, and, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends, he says, quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent will not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Speaking of debtor's prison, most likely. You hear the urgency of those words where Jesus prioritizes resolving conflict even above public worship. The prophet Samuel said to King Saul, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. In the case of conflict, God is more interested in preserving peace among God's people than He is in our public display of worship. Now, applying that today doesn't mean don't go to church unless all your conflicts are resolved. It simply means to emphasize the urgency of reconciliation. And so Paul here urges Yodia and Syntyche, and he expresses urgency to address their conflict. And so it must be with us. Don't let grievances fester. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. 
Don't let the passage of time and added factors compound the matter that need to be resolved. Well, that's urgency. Consider what Paul urges Yodia and Syntyche under the heading unity. Again, look at verse 2. I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. These brief words contain the solution to all of our conflicts. Now, to live in harmony is really more of an application of an interpretation rather than a translation. The, the phrase literally means to think the same. It's as if he's saying, I urge you to think the same. The King James and the New King James, along with the NIV, I think have it best. Be of the same mind. Be of the same mind. This has been a common theme for Paul. In fact, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 2, he says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind. Same, same word. Same idea. Maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He says then in verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. And then in verse 5, have this attitude, which literally is have the same way of thinking, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this attitude, have this way of thinking. This is also a common admonition to other churches. In 2 Corinthians 13.11, Paul says, Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted. Be like-minded. Think the same. Live in peace, he says. To the Romans, he wrote in chapter 15, verse 5, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind. May He grant you to think the same with one another according to Christ Jesus. Not being of the same mind is what causes disunity. Not thinking the same breeds arguments. I mean, just imagine if we all had the same thoughts and perspective and opinions, we would never disagree about anything and we would never argue. Wouldn't that be great? Actually, I don't think so. I don't think that would be great because we would miss out on the variety of perspectives and creative thinking and gifts and passions that we all contribute that enhance ministry and challenge us to grow and produce better results or better solutions to the problems that we face. And so Paul is not advocating here uniformity of mind on everything. That would be impossible and even undesirable. So what does he mean, think the same? Well, the next three words are critical. Think the same, be of the same mind in the Lord. This means that their thinking must be aligned with the mind of their common master, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, it's not that they should have the same mind as one another, but that each of them should be having the same mind as the Lord. Again, in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul said, have this attitude or have this way of thinking in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. There, he specifically meant that 
humility of mind that characterized Jesus and drove his actions is the same humility of mind that we should have in our lives as well. Here in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul expands the scope from the attribute of humility to the totality of the mind of Christ. And so, instead of pursuing uniformity of mind with respect to each other, we should all be conforming our minds to the mind of Christ. His thoughts should increasingly become our thoughts. His desires should be increasingly become our desires. His expectations should increasingly become our expectations. His commitments should increasingly become our commitments. Now, is this even possible? I mean, after all, doesn't Isaiah 55, 8, 9 say, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And then in Romans eleven thirty four, 34, it says, For who has known the mind of the Lord? And then Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, For the secret things belong to the Lord. So one might argue that we really can't know the mind of the Lord. Now you might be thinking, oh, come on, Pastor. We know the Bible better than that. We know that that's a silly argument. Well, beloved, that's not an argument that I raise just to fill time in a sermon. I raise that argument because that is our functional theology. Our practical theology is that even if we could know the mind of the Lord, we're really not all that interested in it. The evidence for this is how little we stop and consider what God's thoughts might be about the conflicts in our life. And I don't mean whether or not we pray about things. I mean how little we ask ourselves, and myself included, how little we ask ourselves, what would God have me to think about this? What priorities would He want me to have? What outcome does He prefer in this situation? We are so often blinded by our own perspective that we never take a step back and ask, wait a minute. Am I thinking about this the way that God would have me to think about this? Now, not everyone can do this. There are many who truly cannot know the mind of God. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. So if you're in in your natural condition, meaning you are unredeemed by Christ, unregenerated, held captive by his sin, you cannot know the mind of Christ. But if you're a Christian, if you are redeemed and indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that is not true of you. Paul goes on to say, but he who is spiritual, referring to those who've been made spiritually alive, but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For Who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Unquote. That question of who has known the mind of the Lord is a quote from Isaiah 
chapter 40, which extols the greatness of God. And the glorious reality is that this great God has conveyed His mind to His people through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now clearly, Paul doesn't mean here that when a person is saved, there's some mystical mind meld where Christ's mind takes over our mind. No, what he means is we have access to the mind of Christ as it is revealed in the pages of Scripture. The work of regeneration where we've been made alive in Christ at the moment of conversion changes the orientation of our mind. Colossians 1.21 says, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you holy and blameless beyond reproach. There's a direct contrast there between hostility of mind and blamelessness, which speaks to the change in our nature. We were once opposed to God, but now we long and have the ability to know God. So now that we are no longer dead in sin, the blinders have been removed and our hostility has been overcome and we have the capacity to progressively renew our minds to be like Christ's. And so Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The renewed mind and the fruit of words and actions that result is what we're repeatedly called to in many scriptures, such as Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, where we're told, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. To the end, he says, consider your members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Setting our minds on the things of earth and not on the things of heaven is just another way of explaining the source of conflicts. The Apostle Peter failed to set his mind on things above, and as a result, he received the strongest rebuke from Jesus. Remember, Jesus was explaining to the disciples that he was going to be killed and on the third day rise again, and, and Peter rebukes Jesus. God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. To which Jesus responded, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. He received a similar rebuke from Paul when he acted out of fear of man. And not based on truth, as we read in Galatians chapter 2. Now, how often would we, would you and I, hear those words from Christ directed at us if, if we were humble enough to submit our opinions and our desires and our priorities against the mind of Christ as revealed in the Scripture? Deuteronomy 29, 29 does indeed say the secret things belong to the Lord, but then it says, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe the words of this law. And so, beloved, let us be renewed in the spirit of our minds so that we would be of the same mind in the Lord. 
Unity is preserved when we hold in common the convictions and desires and priorities of our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before moving on to verse 3, I think it would be helpful to identify what are some key aspects of the mind of Christ that should be at the forefront of our minds when we find ourselves in conflicts and disagreements, especially in the context of the local church. So here are six truths and principles that will help us regardless of the issue at hand. First, our highest priority should be to glorify God. Glorify God. This means that whatever we do in response to conflict should put on display that worshiping God and obeying God is more important to us than anything else in life. Jesus Himself gave us this example when He prayed to the Father in John 17, 4, I glorified you on the earth because I have done everything that you have called me to do. We glorify God when we affirm to Him that His ways are right and best even when it goes against our personal will. And we glorify Him by putting on display His gracious character for others to see and experience from us. Glorifying God is how we obey the great commandment to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so in this effort, we will avoid attitudes, words, and actions contrary to God's will and character. Second, our next highest priority is to love others. This means that we will imitate Christ by putting the goods of the good of others on our above our own. Ephesians chapter two, excuse me, chapter five, verse two says, "Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave Himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma." Oh, it's easy to love when everybody agrees. Christ-like love is tested and revealed when someone has to sacrifice something. So love for others is displayed when we show deference to one another, seeing others as more important than ourselves, and considering their own interests, as it says in Philippians chapter 2. And in those moments where we can't or shouldn't defer, love engages with others in a way that builds them up. We show love when we are more interested in the good of the other person and in preserving and strengthening the relationship than we are in having our own way. And so in this effort, we will avoid attitudes and words and actions that demean and attack others. Number three, we must submit to God's ordained authority. We must submit to God's ordained authority. Whether it's the government or the workplace, in the church or in the home, when there is a conflict that does not pertain to gospel truth or biblical faithfulness, and that's the key, God calls us to submit to the authorities over us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and the praise of those who do right. As he goes on in that passage, in chapter 2, he tells uh, servants to submit to their masters. In chapter 3, he tells wives to submit to their 
husbands, and we could extend that principle of children obeying their parents. In chapter 5, he calls elders to submit to Christ and the church to submit to elders. So we are all under authority and God calls us to submit to the authorities over us. Now the flip side of this is that those who are in authority should consider how they can serve those under them by showing deference as much as they can within the constraints of all that leaders need to consider. And so in this effort, we will avoid attitudes, words, and actions that subvert or oppose those whom God has sovereignly placed over us. Number four, as we seek to glorify God and love others and submit to authority, we must be willing to be wronged. We must be willing to be wronged. Addressing the church at Corinth where believers were taking each other to court, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 7, it's already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? He says. The mind of Christ is that there are times when the best and right thing to do is to absorb the consequences of personal wrongs. And to be clear, this doesn't refer to abuse or criminal wrongs. And there's other nuances and biblical principles that must be considered. But there are times when being defrauded is God's will for us. First Peter chapter 3 would also speak to that. Now, if your gut reaction to that is negative, that's a good thing. Because we are image bearers of God and we have an innate sense of justice. But consider the injustice that Jesus absorbed to reconcile us to himself. Following his example, sometimes we have to suppress our desire for justice and we must die to ourselves as an act of love for God and the other person. So in this effort, we will avoid attitudes, words, and actions that demonstrate that we must win at all costs. Fifth, we must entrust ourselves, the other person, and the situation to our righteous judge. We must entrust ourselves, the other person, and the situation to our righteous judge. This is the model set when faced with the greatest conflict a human being has ever faced. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who, is, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. But, by, but while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but He kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. Beloved, no sin will ever go unpunished. No wrong will ever remain unsettled. No injustice will stand forever. In time and eternity, the righteous judge of all will enforce his justice according to his perfect will. And so in this effort, we will avoid attitudes and words and actions that retaliate or threaten 
or seek vengeance. And then sixth, thinking specifically about conflicts within the church. One way we entrust ourselves and our situation to the Lord is that we remember that the church belongs to Christ and to Christ alone. The church belongs to Christ. As He is the Lord of the church, we must submit our will to His. Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. That's true not only of our own personal lives, but of the church as well. Jesus said, I will build my church. And when the Lord of the church alters the plans that we have made and the expectations that we have, rather than trying to force the steps to come back to our will, we must trust the plans and purposes of the Lord who is more concerned about the welfare of the church than we are and whose will is perfect unlike ours. And so in this effort, we will avoid attitudes and words and actions that presume we know what's best for the church more than Christ does. Glorifying God, loving others, submitting to authority, being willing to be wronged, entrusting ourselves to our righteous judge, and remembering that Christ, that the church belongs to Christ, are just six facets of the mind of Christ that we must embrace to the end that we preserve the unity of the church. Now, if you want to know a lot more aspects of the mind of Christ, you can listen to the Biblical Reconciliation class that's on Sermon Audio or the Gospel for Life class that's there as well. Or you can just read the Bible. The Gospels and the Epistles in particular. Well, let's consider then the verse 3 under the heading help. Help. Look, look at verse 3. Paul says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul directs his attention now to a third party whom he calls true companion, asking him to help Yodia and Syntyche align their minds to Christ. Now, who is this true companion? We have no idea. Some suggest that the word companion, sudugas, is actually a name, but there's no record in any ancient Greek document that identifies that as a name. My best guess is that this is either Epaphroditus who has uh, delivered the letter from Paul to the Philippian church and may be reading it, or more likely it's one of the pastors of the church who is reading the letter to the church. And it would make sense that Paul would charge one of the leaders of the church to help these women through their conflict because it's become a matter of public knowledge. Whoever it is, I think Paul assumes that they have the maturity, the wisdom, and the authority, even the responsibility to serve as a mediator in this situation. And this is what Paul calls all mature believers to do in Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if anyone's caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Now, while Paul doesn't charge Yodia or Syntyche with any particular sin, it seems unlikely that a conflict would have gone on for months and require apostolic guidance and there'd be no sin involved. So these women are caught, they're trapped 
in this conflict where sin is close at hand and it requires a third party to help resolve it. And so Paul says, I ask you to help. Help, there is actually an imperative. This is a command to help. But he expresses it in a gentle way by saying, I ask you. And that his tone is one of, of a loving request is strengthened by the, the reason that he gives. Essentially, he says, these women are precious to me. They've worked side by side with me, he says. They've shared in the joys and sorrows and the blessings and difficulties. They've walked through the trials and hardship of ministry with me. And that probably was 10 years earlier when Paul planted the church. And so he asks this man to remember the contribution that these women have made to the kingdom, along with others, Clement, who we also don't know, and the others who served alongside Paul. He wants this companion, this pastor most likely, to to help these women be restored so that they can be productive in ministry once again. I mean, no no doubt at this point in the conflict, their effectiveness in ministry has come to a halt. And Paul is eager to see them united and restored so that they can put their hands at the plow and move forward with joy. But look at the last phrase of verse 3. Whose names are in the book of life. Don't skip over that. That is not a passing comment. The book of life is actually a rare concept taught in Scripture. And this is the only time that Paul refers to it in all of his letters. What is the book of life? It is the book containing the names of all those who will be saved. And so whether or not your name is found in the book of life will determine your eternal destiny. Revelation 20 says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Is your name written in the book of life? Now, we don't have access to the book to check, but there is a way that you can know. Have you trusted in Christ's death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins? If you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and placed your full confidence and trust in Him alone and not in yourself to be saved from the just wrath of God, that is the evidence on earth that your name is in the book of life in heaven. Now, coming back to the text, that this is the only time that Paul refers to the book of life, I think is significant. I believe Paul uses this rare phrase to get everyone to stop and think. In chapter 1, verse 1, as Paul greets the church, he refers to them as saints. And he does the same thing at the end of the letter, referring to all of the believers in Philippi, as well as all of the believers in Rome as saints. And as we've seen, as we've walked through the letter, he refers to the church repeatedly as brethren, emphasizing the the family relationship that we as believers have with one another. And so if he would have said either of those terms here, we would have just, oh yeah, there it is again, and we just move on. But to say that Yodia and Syntyche and Clement and others, that their names are found in the book of life, 
requires you to focus your mind and process what you've just heard. And here's how I think the Holy Spirit would have us to process this. When we are in conflict with one another, between us and a member of the body of Christ, they are not the enemy. They are not the enemy. We were once enemies, but they are not the enemy. We were once enemies with God and each other, but in the kindness and mercy and love of God, He predestined us to salvation and He sent His only Son to die on the cross, paying the penalty that we deserve so that anyone who believes on Him would not perish, but have eternal life. And as those who have believed, not only do we have eternal life, but we are united to Christ. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We've been justified, declared righteous in His sight. We've been sanctified, set apart for His purposes, and we're being progressively conformed to the image of Christ. And one day we will be glorified, made complete body and soul in likeness to Christ, having the presence of sin completely removed. And not only that, but we have been indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God who unites us to one another, making us brothers and sisters of each other and co-heirs with Christ. And so any barrier that once separated and divided believers, whether it's gender or social or culture or ethnicity or language or tribe, all barriers have been demolished and we are now one in Christ Jesus. So when you look at and when you think about another believer with whom you are in conflict, we must remember who we are. We are fellow sinners in need of grace, saved by grace. We are not enemies. We are brothers. We are sisters. We have been bought by the blood of Christ and the wall of hostility has been torn down and our identity and our dignity and value and citizenship and destiny are all bound up in our common union with Christ. So beloved, if those things are true, there is nothing, nothing in this world that should ultimately divide two believers who are at odds for reasons other than gospel truth or biblical faithfulness. And because we can get so myopic in our perspective and be blinded by our own sense of rightness, there are times when we need help from others who can widen the scope of our perspective and put our priorities in order and shift our thoughts and desires to align with God's. Well, as we come to a close, there, there's no such thing as a conflict-free church. But my prayer is that the Spirit would create in Hope Bible Church a culture that handles conflicts in a God-glorifying, gospel-centered, peace-preserving, relationship-strengthening way. In the last few years, from my 
vantage point as one of the pastors, it's been a joy to see so many disagreements, conflicts resolved in a way that glorified God and preserved relationships. But beloved, conflict is always crouching at the door. And its desire is for us to destroy us. So we must master it. And we do that, we master it when we address conflicts quickly. When we look at each other through the mind of Christ. And if needed, when we employ others who can help us to think like Christ. I started this message with 10 ways to split your church. I'll end with 10 ways not to split your church. And these are the biblical opposites of the original list. Number one, focus on God's desires and priorities. Number two, weigh criticism to see what you can learn and what you should discard. Number three, pray for your pastors that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Number four, always combine speaking the truth in love. Number five, overlook grievances when you can and address them when you can't. Number six, forgive one another as God has forgiven you. Number seven, humbly confess your sin and contribution to conflicts. Number eight, use prayer to unite discontented people around the gospel. Number nine, do whatever it takes to glorify God, even dying to yourself. And number 10, remember, your mission is to be an ambassador of reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are your people and we are weak. We are all sheep. We are stubborn. We're dumb. We keep going astray. Our hearts are prone to wander. Thank you that you are a good shepherd. You guard us, you protect us, you discipline us, and you've given us your spirit to remind us of the truth, to empower us to obey you. Lord God, would you so conform us to the image of Christ that as we live together in this body, as we fellowship, as we worship, as we serve, that we would love one another with your kind of love. That when we bump up against each other, when we have friction with one another, when our opinions differ, Lord, that we would be quick in our own minds to run to you and ask, how should we be thinking about this? What should we be doing? What should our priorities be? Lord, let there not be in any one of us 
a stubborn heart that's deceived by sin. But let us encourage one another as long as it is called today so that we would enjoy the wonderful fellowship and unity that you've provided for us in Christ and that we would bring glory to your name. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen.